Welcome to the Chris Rawl Show. I am your host, and my name is Chris Rawl. I am very excited to be here today because the Stanley Cup playoffs have begun. I feel sick to my stomach. I think I'm going to lose about 20 years off my life over the course of these next two months, depending on how my Colorado Avalanche do. But it is my favorite thing in all of sports. And so now we have that added to the NBA playoffs. The NFL draft is just wrapped up. It's a good time to be alive. It's a good time to be a sports fan. It's also a good time to go and sign up for my newsletter. It's free. It's easy. I will send it to you once a week on Wednesday. All you need to do is go to chrisrawl.com, click the subscribe button, put your email in, and I will talk in great length about the Stanley Cup playoffs and the Colorado Avalanche, hopefully, hopefully, for the next two months. Now, we're going to move on to today's episode, where I talk about championship windows and how quickly they can shut. You never know how long a championship window is going to be open. When things are going well, the future always seems to extend to infinity. That's true outside of sports. You know, I always think of that in terms of relationships. When things are going good, it just seems like it'll always be a part of your life, you know, because you had a great date last night or you had a, a great moment or whatever, you know. And then three months later, you're in a completely different spot. You're going, oh, maybe maybe that moment wasn't as reflective of the long-term stability of this particular relationship. Uh, it's the same thing with championship contention, with the ability to win even one championship, much less prop that window open and say, okay, we can contend for the next three years or five years or the next decade. Just really good stuff in that sense. I think back to 2010 when the Packers won their first and only Super Bowl with Aaron Rodgers, who was young, who was just on the ascent, who had taken the league by storm that year. The Packers squeaked in as a wild card team right at the end and then won three straight games on the road. They beat Mike Vick and the Eagles, then they go on the road and beat the one seed Atlanta Falcons and Matt Ryan. Then they go to Chicago and beat the Bears at Soldier Field. Then they beat the Steelers in the Super Bowl in Dallas. Rodgers is just flamethrowing. I mean, go back and watch his pass to Greg Jennings in the fourth quarter of that game. It's just, it goes through an opening that is the size of the football. On third and 10, huge play of the game for Green Bay trying to stave off the Steelers, and he just fires it like, like there's no tomorrow. And that was the sense that I got after that game. They had Clay Matthews, who was young. They just had a, a roster that seemed like it was set up, and all of that was tied into Rodgers at the quarterback position. So they win the Super Bowl. I'm ecstatic, not just because they'd won, but because the future seemed to extend to infinity. That feeling, you know, things were going good. And I just looked down the road and thought, man, we have this guy. Hopefully, if we treat him correctly, this guy could be our quarterback for a decade and how many Super Bowls could we play for? How many could we win? This is going to be incredible. And the Packers haven't been back to a Super Bowl since. Almost none of that has anything to do with Rodgers, as I've been very vocal about on this show. A lot of failings from the organization. But it just speaks to the particular idea that it's really hard to win championships, period. And it's really hard to continually contend for championships, even if you're not winning them. Uh, within that decade stretch with the Packers, I've said, uh, it's pretty impressive that with a lot of these rosters, they've continually made the playoffs. That's a testament to Roger's strength as a quarterback and just his incredible ability to get the most out of whatever is on his roster. 
I don't really see it as a, as a knock on him that the Packers haven't been winning Super Bowls because out of that decade plus post 2010, I could point to two years, maybe three years actually, where I go, I think Green Bay really, really, really has a shot at this. And having a shot in three years in the NFL, that's sometimes it feels like finding a needle in the haystack. The modern version of what Green Bay was feeling, I look at a team like the Chiefs. And I think that the Chiefs will still win more Super Bowls with Patrick Mahomes. But now they're starting to feel that time crunch a little bit more. When they burst on the scene and they win their first Super Bowl, beat the Niners, come back in the fourth quarter of that game, and they just seemed set up for for a decade-long run. Andy Reid, Patrick Mahomes, Tyreek Hill, Travis Kelsey, a defense that had playmakers, most notably in that game, Chris Jones, who they still have, Honey Badger. And at that time, it just seemed like the Chiefs were ready to kind of take that proverbial torch from the Patriots as the team that was dominating football. This is going to be the new team. And we know, I mean, it's only been a handful of years, but the Chiefs haven't won one since because it's really hard to win. I'm not saying this is a knock on the Chiefs, but now I think they're starting to feel a little bit of the crunch. They're getting into salary cap stuff where they, okay, we got to trade Tyree Kill because he wants to get paid too much money and we don't necessarily want to sink that much into one particular wideout. Now we're trading our most elective skill position player, one that has really great chemistry with Patrick Mahomes. We're going to have to kind of retool the receiver room on the fly in the midst of their division turning into a nuclear arms race. The Chargers seem set up for a long time with Justin Herbert and now adding all these pieces onto the roster because they have a rookie quarterback contract. They can go and sign J.C. Jackson and trade for Khalil Mack, much less what they're doing in the draft, bolstering their offensive line with picks like Zion Johnson in the first round. And the Broncos are getting Russell Wilson. And the Raiders are trading for Devontae Adams and putting that onto a playoff roster from last year. You're starting to see, okay, what looked just like this limitless future where this team could dominate football, now I'm seeing a lot more obstacles because that's how sports work. That's how life works. It's never as smooth sailing as it is in the very best moment. Not always just going to be, oh, we, we stormed through the playoffs and beat the Niners in the Super Bowl and great, we go on our way. It's never going to be like what the Packers had in that 2010 season where they caught lightning in a bottle, they rode it through the playoffs, they won a Super Bowl, and then they haven't been back since. Now, I'm sure all of you are listening and you're all fans of various teams, and I'm sure you're thinking about the same things as it pertains to your particular team because it just, it, the, this idea, these moments that seem like something is opening and then sometimes they do for a while, sometimes they shut just as quickly, everybody has them. Every team has them. And the closer you follow a team, the more that you're able to identify them and also kind of look back sheepishly sometimes and go, I can't believe I thought that this team was set up for contention, you know, but that's the way that fandom works across the spectrum, NFL, NBA, NHL, you name it. The NBA, a team that I followed really closely earlier on in my life was the Sacramento Kings. I just thought they were a very fun basketball team. Early 2000s, first white chocolate, Jason Williams and Chris Webber. Then after they traded him actually become more of a basketball team for Mike Bibby. That team was really fun. They, they stood out like a sore thumb in the midst of just brutish caveman basketball. Five men passing, cutting. Nobody cared who scored. It was really, really fun. So you had Stojakovich and Drug Christie and Weber and Bibby and Vladi Divac, just all these really selfless players, all who could hurt you in various ways. In 2002, they take the Lakers to game seven, it's an abomination of a series from a refereeing standpoint. Tim Donaghy's refereeing within that series who gets put in jail for fixing games. Uh, 
they end up losing in overtime of game seven on their home court, Arco Arena. Which I was devastated about because I did not like the Lakers at all. And I wanted the Kings to win because I just thought they represented the very best of what basketball could be at that time. But it also, coming out of that series, I go, this is a better team than the Lakers. If this series was refed more fairly, I feel very confident that the Kings would win. And I think they're set up to really contend for a while. You know, they got a lot of great pieces. And then 2003, Chris Webber gets hurt. He's never really the same. And the Kings never even come close to that level of contention. They're losing to the Mavericks or the Timberwolves, Kevin Garnett. And the next thing you know, the team has been dissembled. And the Kings have been wandering in the wilderness for a decade and a half. They've been the worst team in basketball. And shut like that, you know. Team I mentioned last week. As I was talking about, Russell Westbrook follows the same mold. 2012 Thunder, young Kevin Durant, young Russell Westbrook, young James Harden. You'll never look at a team, even in the moment, much less in retrospect, that despite the loss in the finals to the Heat that year, you look at it and you go, this, this future is limitless. This team is just set up for so much success. How many NBA finals can they make? How many NBA championships can they win? Well, the answer was zero. They traded James Harden. 2016, they come... Within one game of making the NBA Finals, they're up 3-1 against the Warriors. They blow that. The famous Clay Thompson Game 6. Kevin Durant's gone. They never go and do anything with the championship. This is one of the most interesting parts of following sports for me. It's that continuing through time that you're just noticing things. And as they thread together over the course of years and years and years, it makes for a really rich and compelling experience to follow teams that are not your own and teams that are your own. I look at a team that I have no connection to really besides the fact that I like Chris Paul, but the 2022 Phoenix Suns, they're right in the thick of just, you got to win. You don't know how long this window is open because your success in large part is tied to a aging point guard. Chris Paul, who's 36, 37, I'm not even sure what he is at this point, but he's really old and he's balling the hell out. He's been phenomenal in these playoffs. And you look at a team like that and you don't know if, they're going to have a championship window open for the next three years. Is that possible? I don't know. Can they retool on the fly if Paul's gone? That seems really hard to do. Is it going to be like those 2002 Kings, which you say, ah, this team ended up having a one or two year window. They lost in the finals last year, the Bucks. If they end up going down this year and they're never the same, you look back on that team and say, this is one of the really good teams that just wasn't able to break through. But again, this is where the pressure comes from, especially for a team like this. That's tied into somebody who's older and you know, the future is not extending to infinity. It is finite because Chris Paul is not going to be awesome for the next decade. He will be in his late forties at that time. though very comfortable saying he's not going to be just thrashing NBA basketball players at that point. So how long do you have? Maybe just this year, maybe another, who knows? I look at the team that is in my home state. If you want to talk about just moments that appear and they speak to a lot of promise, and then just as quickly, it's, oh, no, that, that, that was not true. The 2021 Jazz, they had the best record in the NBA regular season. Great ball movement on offense. A defense that we did not have as many questions about as we do now in present day. And I go back and say, if you pause time coming out of game two of the second round playoff series against the LA Clippers. The future really did seem wide open. I was at games one and game two of that series. Mitchell explodes for 37 in game two. The Clippers, they're storming back in the fourth quarter. They take their first lead. It's like midway through the fourth quarter. Reggie Jackson hits back-to-back threes. 
and the Jazz buckle down. They go on a 14-2 run at that point to put the game away. Their defense is great. They force the Clippers into nine straight misses during that run, which is capped by this Joe Ingles three-pointer. It just kind of puts the game on ice. So we're all celebrating. And I'm coming out of it and I'm going, I can't believe it. This is, is it really possible that this Jazz franchise that much like a lot of teams in a lot of sports, they just have a lot of tortured moments. They never won a championship, but it extends beyond that. They've been really competitive and have had opportunities. And there's just a lot of fallen by the wayside type seasons because either they weren't good enough or they just ran into the wrong team at the wrong time, a.k.a. Michael Jordan and the Bulls for two straight years in the NBA Finals. But every franchise has these micro moments, these points in time where it seems like the pieces for championship contention are starting to coalesce. I felt that coming out of game two. I wasn't saying the Jazz are the favorites and they're going to win, but I go, I'm starting to see how this makes sense in my mind. They just wipe the floor with, a team that has Kawhi Leonard and Paul George and all these really just solid NBA pieces. And they're up 2-0 and, you know, just go and snag one game in LA and man, we can close a series out in five games or whatever. It seemed like things were starting to coalesce. Now the hard part of fandom, (laughs) which I've been referring to lately as, as the closed loop because I get down in the dumps and I go, I feel like I'm experiencing the same things over and over, especially for, A lot of the teams that I follow that have not had success in a long time or ever in the case of the Jazz. And I go, I think you're just doomed to relive the failures of your team over and over and over. The hamster wheel of of being a fan. Because for the vast majority of franchises, including the Utah Jazz, these moments disappear just almost as quickly as they came. You know, it's an eye blink. It's a snap of the fingers. Because four games later, it's the death toll for this iteration of the Jazz. Game six against the Clippers. I don't need to go into it because I've done it too many times. But it was just the blueprint laid completely bare on, oh, if the Jazz continue to run out this personnel, this is how you whoop their ass on both sides of the ball. Despite the fact that Kawhi Leonard's not even playing anymore. And it's Paul George with Reggie Jackson and Marcus Morris and Terrence Mann, most notably in that game. But you felt like something had shifted within that particular game as the Clippers bashed them in game three, bashed them in game four, won game five on the road without Kawhi at that point, and then game six comes storming back from 25 down and end up winning going away. One year later, the Jazz have lost in the first round against the Mavericks with the exact same blueprint. Five out, get these small people going at the Jazz. There's no perimeter defense whatsoever, and they're just not going to be able to score enough to beat you because they struggle to play offense in the postseason in a manner that they do in the regular season. Teams are able to cinch down in a manner that they just don't care to do in the regular season. So they lose game six. Bogdanovich misses the wide open three that could have extended to seven. But my feeling coming out of that series was just doubling down on the feeling coming out of game six of the Clipper series. This giant neon sign flashing in my head saying, the Jazz are light years away from championship contention. I very rarely deal in that kind of absolute with teams. I'm pretty open-minded. I think all of you know that because you listen to this show. I'm pretty open-minded when it comes to possibilities within sports that can really be fickle and really come down to these margin plays, the bounce of the ball, the refing, all that kind of stuff. But with the Jazz, I just feel it in the depth of my bones. I think everybody who watches 
them, especially who watch just them drag their feet through the regular season and then just kind of put up a half-assed fight against the Mavericks, they look at it and they go, no, you are not going to win a championship with the roster that is currently in place. I think everybody agrees on that. I haven't talked to one person who believes otherwise now. A pretty stark contrast to how I personally felt a year ago after game two against the Clippers and what a lot of people within the basketball world felt, which was, oh, this team isn't the favorite, but they're on the list of people who we think could win title. That seems insane in retrospect because just as quickly as a moment like that appears, it can disappear. So I'm talking about all of this because championship windows are on my mind. They're on my mind at all times in general, but they're really on my mind when one of my team is within one. And speaking of championship windows, the state, the chase for the Stanley Cup has begun. And tonight on Tuesday, my favorite team will play their first game of the first round, Colorado Avalanche, who once again, just like last year, are the betting favorites to win the Stanley Cup, which is a really hard thing to do. As anybody who follows this sport knows, you want to talk about volatility and fickleness. It's the nature of hockey. It's its blessing and its curse. The curse is to the people who truly want one specific team to win. Because I tear my hair out every single time the Avalanche have a chance to win a playoff game, win a playoff series, and the bounces go against them, as they have for the last four years. Now, the Avalanche have been a really interesting point of understanding for me because I followed them my whole life and they've taught me a lot about this particular aspect of sports and strangely enough of life just how quickly things can open and shut because when I was young and the avalanche moved to Denver in 1996 that became my favorite team they were the local team they were shown on Fox Sports Rocky Mountain they were the only hockey games I could really get so now I'm watching them and I'm going this is this team's sweet Compounding that, the Avalanche win the Stanley Cup the first year they move to Denver from Quebec. So now I'm rooting for a winner. They have all sorts of incredible talent. Young at the time in 96. Young Joe Sackick, young Peter Forsberg, Patrick Waugh, just all these Hall of Famers, literally. Then they're bolstering that roster in the following years. They're going all in every single season. Pierre Lacroix, the general manager, he's trading for Rob Blake from the Kings, one of the best defensemen. And then he's Trading for Ray Bork, who's looking for his first Stanley Cup from Boston. He's played his whole career there, and he's just, he needs to get over the top. So the Avalanche want him, bolster that defensive core. Lose in a tragic game seven in 2000. Western Conference Finals against the Stars. Same as they did in 1999, actually, without Ray Bork. So now the 2001 season, it seems like it's going to be his final season. And the Avs, they come storming through the playoffs. And it's just, it's my favorite memory in hockey was that 2001 Cup playoff run. Forsberg goes down with a ruptured spleen in the conference semis against the Kings. He plays through it the last couple of games and then has emergency surgery after the Avs win in game seven. Doctors are like, you kind of could have died from that. And, and then nobody bats an eye because that's just what happens in the Stanley Cup playoffs. People have these insane injuries and they're just playing. So now I'm going, oh man, we're down our most talented forward. How are we going to make up? Oh my gosh. And they dunk on the Blues in the Western Conference Finals. The New Jersey Devils, who they were one of the titans of that time. It was the Avalanche, the Devils, the Red Wings. Those three teams, I think, most encapsulate that era of hockey. And it goes to game seven. Avalanche end up winning 3-1. Ray Bork, he's the first person to lift up the cup. Joe Sackett gives it straight to him, who's the captain. 
and it's just all of this success where there was nothing in my mind that led me to believe, oh, that this will be otherwise. You know, that's just kind of the naivety of youth, right? You experience really good things over and over and you just go, oh, well, this, why would I ever think that anything is going to be different? Now, fandom over the, the, the ensuing 20 years in pretty much all of the sports that I follow taught me a lot in the opposite direction, which is things can go good for a while, but that never extends to infinity despite what you may feel at the time. So even after the 2001 Cup, it seems like the Avalanche are, they're ready to contend for a while because they still have a lot of these pieces and they're still making the playoffs. Even the next year, they lose in Game 7 of the Western Conference Finals against the Red Wings. But it just seems like the window's still propped open. You know, get at it. And it slowly just starts trending downwards. And they missed the playoffs for the first time in 2007, which was shocking to me. They'd never missed the playoffs since I'd been watching the team, since they moved to Colorado in 1996. So now I'm going, oh, is that even possible? And stars are aging out. Patrick Waugh's retiring. Forsberg's getting traded. He's getting surgeries on his hips and his ankles, and you can just see his body breaking down. They missed the playoffs again in 2009. Joe Sackick retires that year. And I very vividly remember this. Uh, I'm now 23 at the time. I very vividly remember watching Joe Sackick's retirement press conference which a dude who is not really known for his quotes nor his emotion, but you know, he feels the weight of the moment and he starts talking about just his career and, and he's starting to cry and it's showing these highlights of his career, which it's starting to like sink in on me. I'm just going, Oh, it's really weird that I've watched the majority of this person's career. Who is awesome. Joe Sackick, one of the best players that I've watched play hockey. He did so on my favorite team. He brought him two cups. He's just, Seemed like every time they needed a huge goal in the playoffs, Joe Sackick's the one to score it. And yet now I'm watching these clips strung together and I'm going, oh, this really sucks that I'm never going to watch this particular player again. And I felt a bigger sense of, oh, this version of avalanche hockey that I really took for granted earlier on and maybe less so within, you know, the 2007 to 2009 range. Hmm, we're shifting into just a different phase of existence as it pertains to being a fan. Uh, what I always thought was just this endless championship window that was open. That's not here right now. You know, the avalanche from probably 2005 to 2009, that was just not really in the cards. Which leads post-Sakic retirement into just a lot of dark years. That's the understanding of, okay, fandom has highs and lows. And watching the avalanche from 2011 to 2017 was... About as low as you can get. It's them missing the playoffs six of seven years. The only year they make it, they lose in the first round. 2017, they're the worst team in hockey by a country mile. They're getting high draft picks throughout this time because they're so bad. They're just atrocious almost every year. But they're struggling to get all these pieces to click into place. You see promise, you go, I like a lot of what McKinnon's doing, but he seems untethered. And, ooh, this Landiscog guy is intriguing. Oh, Ryan O'Reilly, that's intriguing. Oh, Matt Duchesne. They're getting pieces but it's not coalescing into a hockey team. So Ryan O'Reilly's traded and I'm pissed about it because Ryan O'Reilly at, at that time was one of my favorite players and a person who truly made sense to me is a, a player that instills a, a winning culture and really a player that you want in the playoffs. Now this was me putting the cart before the horse because the Avs couldn't make the playoffs. They trade Matt Duchesne who didn't really want to be in Colorado and I'm going, man, we're getting all these high draft picks and just trading them away and we seem no better for any of this. What, what's going on here? And then four years ago, I get the, 
the spike back into positivity where I'm given a really big reminder of, oh, this is what I love about following a team. And even if they can't win the Stanley Cup, this is a reminder of what I really love about hockey, that when your team makes the playoffs, it is an adrenaline rush. Four years ago, the Avalanche, they're battling down the stretch of the regular season. They make the playoffs on the last day. They have a game against the St. Louis Blues, which I hadn't watched a big Avalanche game in many years. I watched so many Avalanche games from 2011 to 2017 that were just complete horseshit hockey. They were so bad. And I just would sit there and go, what am I even doing? What am I even doing? And 2018, I finally feel that rush again of there's a big game. There's legitimate stakes. The Avalanche have to beat the Blues to make the playoffs. It's in Denver. The crowd is feeling what I'm feeling. Just, oh, damn, it feels good to have this back. I remember Sam Girard scores the first goal in the first period. Sam Girard, a piece that was involved with the Matt Duchesne trade from the Ottawa Senators. So he scores, which kind of seemed poetic in my mind because I go, sweet. The dude who didn't want to be here, he's out. We seem like we got something with this Gerard guy, you know. He's going to be an NHL defenseman at the very least. Little did we know that a draft pick would turn into Bowen Byram, who really seems like a piece of the Avs defense. So now in present day, I'm going, we got two great defenders for the price of Matt Duchesne, who, who gives a shit, who cares? Landis Cog, he's the one who scores the empty net goal that really sets off the celebration. Empty netter with like three minutes and change to go to give the Avs a three-goal lead. And the place is just going bananas. McKinnon's jumping on him. I mean, I'm at home just freaking out going, yes, this is, this is what I love about hockey. And I'm not feeling a championship window open, but I'm feeling this is a team that actually has life, which when you've wandered for a decade without that, that's a really good place to start. Their first round matchup is against the kingpins of the Western Conference at that time a team that was in the midst of their championship contention window that was never truly fulfilled, the Nashville Predators. And I knew the Avalanche weren't going to win, but I go, let's try and steal a game. And, you know, it's just great to have my team in the playoffs. The Stanley Cup playoffs, it's as good as anything. I love watching as much as any event in sports. And when the Avalanche are involved, it just blips it up a little bit higher because you experience all those emotional highs and lows even more intensely. So the Avs, they, they show out well for a team that nobody thought would win. They extend the series to six games. Andrew Hammond, the Hamburglar, he comes in for the Avalanche to play goaltender in game five because of injuries. They steal a game on the road in Nashville. And I'm just like, I'm at the point where I don't think it's going to happen, but I'm going, we got game six in Denver. If we can just squeak that one out, who knows what could happen in a game seven. Unfortunately, Nashville wins, but I'm feeling positivity going out of that season. Again, I'm not feeling there's this championship contender that is being built before my eyes because... At this point in time, I've been trained to just uh, expect the worst. And if anything good happens, just savor it because you might not even have that. This is the the, like process of being a fan. Sooner or later, you're going to go through a stretch where you just get beaten down and you go, "Uh, I'll take whatever you're willing to give me. In the case of the Avalanche in 2018, making the playoffs and losing in six games in the first round in Nashville, that was a breath of fresh air. Now we know over the ensuing years, Starting with the next season, I start to see flickers where I go, uh, maybe there's something there. McKinnon starts turning into one of the best players in hockey. And Kel McCarr comes in in the playoffs the following season as the Avs thump the Flames in round one. The Flames, who are the number one seed in the Western Conference, the Avs trounce them in five games. Kel McCarr comes in in game three. You see the flash there. 
they lose in a really hard-fought seven-game series to the San Jose Sharks in round two. Another team, much like Nashville, that had a championship window that was open and extended for years and was never truly fulfilled. They never could break through and win the cup. They made a cup finals just like the Predators did. They were an awesome team for a lot of years. They couldn't get over the hump because it's really, really hard to win a championship. So the abs show out well. There's a atrocious call from the referee, an offsides call on Gabe Landeskog that takes a goal off the board for the Avalanche. They lose game seven by one goal. I'm still bitter about it to this day. That's the way fandom works sometimes. But what do you do? There's more promise there. And then the next season, they're just adding pieces and the pieces that are there that are young, they're starting to get better and better and better. And suddenly I'm going, "Ah, I think this team could win the Stanley Cup. That's how I'm feeling two years ago. And they're really young and injuries hamstring against the stars. They lose in overtime of game seven of the second round playoff series that year, which is heartbreaking because I'm going, "Ah, maybe this is an opportunity that slipped away. But I still wasn't fully engaged with the idea that this team is really incredibly talented and the championship window is now. And last year, that's when it just all of it clicks into place in my mind. And I go, all right, the time is now. Uh, it seems like the window is going to be open for a while because these players, most of them are really young. They still have room to grow. And even if they don't, they are awesome. They're all, all world talents, a lot of them up and down the roster. But they lose to the Knights in the second round of last year's playoffs. And I'm starting to get that little uneasy feeling now. This is the, these are the swings of fandom because now I'm back into where I was back in the late 90s, early 2000s, where I understand very, very, very clearly that no matter what, no matter how long this championship window seems open, you never know how long. So now we enter into the 2022 first round, where interestingly enough, as I think about the Colorado Avalanche specifically, time is a flat circle. That's a great line from Matthew McConaughey in the series True Detective. And we're back in the first round and the Colorado Avalanche are playing the Nashville Predators, much like in 2018, and the roles are completely reversed. Nashville as the upstart who nobody expected really to make the playoffs this year. Colorado as the team on the ascent, the team that is squarely within a championship window. They have not yet won. A lot of people think they could. Whether that happens remains to be seen. This is where all of the feel-good things that were so fun, that were awesome, that happened during the regular season, they don't really mean anything anymore. You shift gears and you go, Kill McCarr, his coming out party this season is chase for the Norris Trophy. Awesome. McKinnon, just anytime he plays, he's awesome. Kadri, best season of his career. Awesome. Darcy Kemper, since the calendar turned, one of the best goaltenders in hockey. Awesome. Larry Nachushkin, finally fulfilling the promise of a top 10 pick that he was when he was drafted by the Stars and never really found. And now he's tapped into something else with the Avalanche, becoming one of the greatest power forwards in hockey at this point in time, which is insane. The trade for Arturi Lekkonen, who's quickly become one of my favorite players in all of hockey, just the way that he plays, which I think will transition perfectly into the playoffs. All that stuff's great in the regular season. It's all cool. It's brought me a lot of joy, happiness. Uh, There's so many moments within this regular season where I go, that was so cool. Kel McCarr against the Chicago Blackhawks in overtime. If you have not watched that goal, You'll never have a regular season moment that my jaw hits the floor and I go, that's the coolest thing I've ever seen. And I can't believe I'm this excited about a regular season moment. All that stuff out the window. This is where the pressure goes from for the avalanche, a one to a 10. Because Stanley Cup is the greatest trophy in sports. And for my money, the Stanley Cup playoffs, they're as good as it gets in any sport because of the stress and the pressure that it places upon teams in general 
and especially teams that are there within their championship window. So Colorado steps into that tonight. They step into the spotlight as the favorite. Pressure. Expectation. Stuff that is really compelling to watch. When it's your team, uh, it's a grind and it's going to be, it is going to be an emotional roller coaster. But all of this stuff is occurring in the midst of a championship window that seems wide open. But, but, but you never know how quickly that can disappear. Thank you for listening to The Chris Rawl Show. This podcast is produced by Weston Tanner. Remember to go and sign up for my newsletter. It's free. It comes out every Wednesday morning. You can go to chrisrawl.com and click the subscribe button. I will presumably talk about the Colorado Avalanche. I will presumably talk about the NBA playoffs in some way, shape, or form. I will probably talk about the NFL draft. And for the next two months, I'll probably just weep over and over while I'm writing about whatever is going on with the Stanley Cup playoffs and the Colorado Avalanche. So thanks for listening today. I will talk to you again on Friday.